Hello and welcome to episode 10 of the House of Dance Sober podcast, where I look to rebrand sobriety in the music industry and beyond. Feels like a pretty good milestone, I must say, episode 10. So thank you so much to everyone that's listened along the way. It's pretty mad that I've been putting them out fortnightly for coming up five months now, uh, but really been enjoying the process, spoken to some incredible guests that I've absolutely loved every single conversation I've had. I feel like I've learned loads every time I've done it, whether that's just through putting the podcast together and getting out of my comfort zone, doing things that way, or just by speaking to these amazing people that have these awesome experiences that I hope you have found valuable too. So this is actually going to be the end of series one. I'm going to do 10 episodes a series, or at least that's the plan for now. And I thought this would be a perfect time to wrap things up for series one and then continue building everything I've got in line for series two. Uh, I may well drop some little episodes in between with a slightly different structure, undecided yet, but make sure you are following or subscribing on whatever platform you're using to listen to your podcasts and follow at House and Aunt Sober on Instagram to make sure you are up to date on anything like that. So for this special 10th episode, I was joined by none other than London Electricity, who should need absolutely no introduction if you even have a vague idea of drum and bass and the industry and the scene. He is the co-founder of one of, if not the biggest drum and bass label of all time, and that is Hospital Records. So as you can probably guess already, I was really excited to have this conversation and it really, really was an interesting one. He has so much knowledge and experience to share and hopefully I managed to at least scratch the surface with some of that and hopefully you'll enjoy listening to it. So for the 10th time, let's hit play. in the zone doing a mix what's the mix for um it's it's just for my next podcast actually for uh thingcast is it yeah that's right very nice um yeah i listened to the first episode the other day really enjoyed it good thank you had it on in the car as i was driving down south had my girlfriend in the passenger seat taking a few notes on the way um but yeah really enjoyed it so uh, nice yeah, give us a little intro to that podcast then. Um, what's the concept behind it? Well, um, I wanted to do a new podcast um, because I'm moving on from hospital and uh, I've always wanted to do a podcast where I kind of did it the first actually when I first started it, but really to really go go into one idea on each podcast. Um, and that's the way I'm shaping this now, is around each episode. I mean, the first one's a little bit um, slightly different because it's explaining what I'm doing um, and why I'm moving on from hospital. Um, but now we're going to get stuck into it, and each, each episode is going to have one topic for discussion if you like and uh, Thinkcast 2 is 
going to be about expectation. Um, which is something I've been thinking a lot about over the last few weeks. So uh, we're going to go in on that. Okay, and you're having a are you having a different guest interviews you each time, or what's the format? No, 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 no. That that was a one off. So I'm going to um, I'm going to be interviewing people. Okay. Myself, uh, I was going to interview Frost for this one, but um, his bubble have just tested positive, so um, he's got a he's got a lockdown for a week or so. Has this uh, is this for you completely taking over from the hospital podcast? Is that going to continue? Or is this kind of replacing it for you? Um, it's replacing it for me. I will. I'll hop on the hospital podcast every now and then um, as a guest. But uh, I mean, no, the whole the whole sort of trajectory of the podcast is quite interesting because I started it in two thousand and six, and hardly anyone was podcasting then. And and it went, you know, it was it was great actually. I took to it straight away, really enjoyed it, and it became of my became part of my weekly or bi-weekly routine. Um, but hospital was quite small then, and as it's grown, um, I started <laughs> I started to get censored by my own employees. <laughs> uh, so because I'm quite, you know, I'm a bit rebellious and opinionated and free-spirited and uh which is okay when hospital was small but as hospital got bigger and bigger um it kind of became more serious so i would get edited um and actually at times told what i couldn't say which okay it was my company they were my employees fair enough but you know you make your bed you've got to lie in it but actually at the end of the day I wasn't feeling comfortable like that. So um, I just thought, you know, I want to do my own podcast. So now you can say what you want. Yeah. Yeah, 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 totally. You obviously went into quite some depth as to why mm. you're leaving hospital in episode one of your Thinkcast. So I'll obviously point anyone in that direction to get a full in-depth explanation. But... Um, you can kind of go into it as uh, in-depthly as you like or just skim across, but give us an idea as to why it is that you're moving on. Um, it's, very, it's very obvious in my mind why. Um, I think it's probably it's going to take some people a bit of a while to get used to the fact and to understand why on earth I'd want to. Um, because, you know, I built this label from the ground up from nothing. And across 25 years, it's, I mean, it's, it's far bigger than I actually wanted it to be, to be honest. Um, but what, I, what I've learned about, oh, sorry, I'll just mute that. What I've learned about business is that uh, you, can't, you can't stop a business from growing. So if you don't want it to grow any further, you can't suddenly sort of, turn the tap down a bit it doesn't work like that uh, because a business has its own trajectory and if it was meant to grow it's meant to grow so and I I've always been much more comfortable in the the company of the underdog the underground 
Um, and it's much more appealing to me, you know, to be involved in something that's starting up, the excitement of that. Um, and as it, I didn't realise why I was, I was kind of getting frustrated and, and just unhappy at hospital for the last few years. And I didn't really know why. And then it did occur to me that I was actually really bored. Uh, but stressed and boredom and stress is terrible, terrible combination. You know, excitement and stress is good because you thrive off the stress and the excitement and it all generates a kind of forward motion. But I was, I was bored because I've done it for so many years and the music that my artists were making wasn't boring. The music I was making wasn't boring, but the procedure, the, the process of being a kind of, well, for drum and bass, the biggest label in terms of, you know, staff numbers. And I mean, we've now got nearly 30 staff, uh, which is a lot. And you suddenly have to spend your entire time. If you run the business, you've got to spend all your time doing, doing like management and risk assessments and kind of like HR and, Basically, all the stuff that I got into music to get away from. <laughs> Makes total sense. It does make sense, doesn't it? Yeah. And suddenly there I was running this company, having to do all this stuff that I hated. So, and I was, I was just dead miserable, really. And it, it took last year to really, to knock the stuffing out of me completely and make me realise, actually, no, I need... I really need to move forwards from this, you know. So that's what I'm doing. And it it's nice because I'm, you know, hospital's 25 years old and I feel immensely proud of building that label. You know, it worked. The plan came together and and it's it's in rude health and it will continue for as long as we all want it to continue. I'm still a shareholder, uh, but I won't have an active part in running it. Um, so, so yeah, it's like if, if hospital was struggling, I'd feel really bad about In fact, I probably feel more excited to stay, to be honest, <laughs> to try and rescue it. But, yeah. but it's not, you know, it's, uh, it's doing really well. So I'm happy to now really sort of, uh, yeah, I'm kind, of, I'm kind of enjoying not deciding exactly what I'm going to do. I mean, I'm I'm doing a new podcast and I'm rebuilding my studio and I'm, I'm buying loads of new synths. And, uh, yeah, the lady culminator is not happy because every two days, like, and another one comes through the door. It's got to the point now where I answer the door and I try and sneak it upstairs to the studio before she sees. <laughs> But she's not Love stupid. <laughs> so, yeah. Kind of sounds like you're in a point of freedom in your life that you maybe haven't had in some time. I haven't had this. Well, I can't remember when I had this. Because as soon as I finished college, um, I did a performing arts degree and majored in music. Uh, and I was just like a panicky 20-year-old, like, who didn't know anything about anything, business, nothing. All I knew was that 
I had to do music. So I was on a dole for years, like struggling, trying to work out what on earth I was going to do and how I was going to do it, um, making ends meet teaching. But it, it was very stressful, but I kind of, um, I channeled all of that stress and anxiety into this is what I'm going to do, this is what I'm going to do, and sort of battle my way through it, trial and error, and taught myself along the way. So ever since then, I've just been totally weaponizing my ego and like yeah i've been driven you know really driven and for the 25 year lifespan of hospital totally driven um really exciting time you know realizing that this mental vision that i had actually means something and it, it could possibly work um so yeah it's been I've been doing three jobs constantly. You know, I've been, I've been an artist, and that's in the studio and performing. I've been um, almost every role in the record label, apart from artwork. You know, I was business affairs. I learned how to do contracts, legal affairs. Um, you name it, A and R. Obviously, um, used to run the mail order. I mean, it's you know everything, um, and then. Yeah, I think it was when I was when I was getting depressed last sort of three or four years and not understanding why. Um, I was still, I was even more driven because I was determined to drive myself out of this hole that I was in emotionally and working even harder, um, which kind of made it worse because I didn't realise why I was unhappy. But now I do, and I've made the decision to move forward. Um, I do feel... I feel free of, it's funny because I've, I've always called ambition a curse, you know, and for me it was always something that no matter how much I fed it, it was always hungry, you know, and now I can see I was right, you know, although it was very useful, my ambition, because it built a hospital and built my career and it's helped to build the careers of loads of artists as well along the way towards the last few years it really wasn't great you know um and the thing that was very constructive became destructive so i've laid down my ambition now and uh, i'm very happy to do that to be honest yeah it sounds that way so like you mentioned you had a lot of ambition and i think to get anything, whether it's a record label or any kind of business to a level the hospital is at in, in any industry, in any niche, in any job, whatever it is, you do need a hell of a lot of ambition. Yeah. Um, a hell of a lot of drive, resilience. And I guess in a lot of cases, you need an entrepreneurial mindset to be able to start something that mm. you have a long-term vision for. Do you feel like you had that entrepreneurial drive early on well i wouldn't i wouldn't call it that i always had a bit of a struggle with that word because it sort of makes it makes you sound like a young alan sugar uh and i was absolutely crap at business so it didn't come naturally to me but in terms of a kind of unstoppable drive yeah that's really that's crucial um and for me, 
the ambition was never it was never about money um i had no money when i started out but money was never important as long as i could eat and had a roof and could afford a guitar and you know a very very basic recording setup as it was before in the box recording um i had no ambition for money i had no ambition for fame um it was just ambition for getting better as a songwriter and a producer and ambition for i guess being heard you know so that those two things are very different from going yeah i'm the man i want to be famous make loads of money get loads of fans you know it's totally different it's more inward in a way yeah so you mentioned that ambition to be heard do you mm. is that something that you initially were struggling with and one of the things that led you to think right for me to be heard i need to kind of start my own label i think it's more primal than that and it goes back to the kind of childhood i had uh where we were kind of brought up, me and my sisters were brought up very much in an incredibly old-fashioned way. We were brought up to be seen and not heard. You know, we weren't allowed to be heard, to express ourselves. So we weren't allowed to have any kind of emotional voice as children. And I believe that's what got me into music very early, this, this need to be heard, you know. The label has obviously stood the test of time. Mm. You must have seen several labels, artists, I guess even like subgenres come and go during yeah. that time. Oh yeah. Um, what have you done right? What what's been the key to longevity? I believe that what what we did right with hospital was kind of basic things like. I mean, when I met Chris, the reason that I wanted him to, to kind of be on this journey with me is because we had certain things in common. Um, Chris Goss, this is, and neither of us were materialistic. And consequently, when we had a bit of success, we never, we never bought fast cars or, you know, we always put the money back into the company. Um, and from, from day dot, I had a philosophy of always putting the artist first and making sure that our accounting was second to none in the industry. And it is, you know, and I take great, great pride in that. I mean, I, my dad designed the first accounting system, funnily enough. Um, I mean, he was a civil engineer, but he wanted to help. So, and it was good. And I've always kind of prioritized that because I, I knew as a musician, as a struggling artist, I knew what it was like to trust my work with another label and not be paid, you know, and it, it's horrible. And it's not horrible because you're not getting any money. It's horrible because they're taking a piss out of you and all that work you put into it is kind of being thrown back in your face. You know. Um, so I knew how it felt and I knew it was vital to me that any artist that 
were on my label wouldn't feel like that. And also I knew from a business point of view, it's gold. Because if you if you make sure everyone's looked after, they're accounted for everything and they're paid, word spreads. And not only do they want to stay, but other artists want want some of that as well. You know. And the other thing was to make sure that the kind of basics were all there. Um, that we started hospital in such a DIY style that the overheads were never big. You know, it's really important that you can't, I still, I still believe it's true that you just shouldn't start a business and hope it's going to be really successful. So you borrow loads of money at the start. You know, that that's a recipe for um, all sorts of bad things, to be honest. Uh, certainly, it, for me, it doesn't work that way. And for me, it's always worked that um, I, I work harder than everybody else. And I work with people who work harder than everybody else. And as a team, we work harder than everybody else. And we... We do it on a shoestring and we, despite that, we do it better than everybody else. Um, so it's very rare that hospitals hired outside pluggers. Um, we've always done everything in house. It's, you know, the artwork, um, the publishing, obviously the, the events, um, and now all the, the motion graphics are all in house and very much the philosophy is that why if we pay someone else to come and do this stuff then we're not only spending our money we're spending our artists money and they're not going to do it with the same passion that we would do it why would they you know it's just like 500 quid a month to them or something you know for us it's it's our bread and butter and our livelihood so we put the extra passion in and that's always the philosophy. So I guess a lot of what you've referred to there is um, is royalties, really, um, and making sure the artists get their cut and they get what they deserve for the music that they've put their heart yeah. and soul into. So what advice would you give to up-and-coming artists that are just starting to release on labels. And unfortunately, there's not room for everyone in hospital, right? Mm. So what, what advice would you give them so they don't get fucked over by certain labels? Um, so we have to make the assumption that the artist in question is hugely talented and has got absolutely everything going for them in terms of raw talent, originality, technical ability. Now that's only a very small percentage of artists, but assuming the artist has those qualities, then it's still not a given that they're going to be noticed and they're going to break through. Um, it only suits certain artists to sign to an established label by no means suits everybody um, because there are cert there's a certain amount of independence that you have to give up when you sign a career deal with a label like a hospital 
uh, and a certain amount of freedom you, you have to give up in exchange for um, a much bigger profile and bigger promotion, etc. But that's not the only way of doing it. Another way of doing it is if you, you can have a game plan where you you choose what labels to release your tracks on because you want to access the ears of the people who listen to those labels, you know. Um, but certainly if I was going to do that, and it's a really valid way to work, I would have a game game plan whereby after, say, two years of doing that, assuming things were going in the right direction, I would have my own label ready to go. And that could be my own imprint that is only on Bandcamp or whatever. Um, if things were going extraordinarily well, then people are going to keep buying my stuff from my own label to find that artist. And maybe there's room to get a manager to actually promote me and so forth. But when it comes down to making money off selling music, which is an incredibly hard thing to do, uh, in that situation, it's valuable to have every every cent of that dollar, you know. Um, so, especially especially like if you take into account what's happened over the last year plus, with everything locking down, no events, no performing income, and obviously now. Brexit has happened, so DJ revenue is going to be massively affected by the lack of European gigs um, because it's it's almost not worth it now to do gigs in Europe with the amount of paperwork and the taxes and the kind of VAT and all of that, the visa costs, you know. So it's still worth it to play in Australia and New Zealand and certain artists in America, um, and obviously UK. But there may be another lockdown, but we don't know. We may see another lockdown before the end of the year. You know, I mean, infections are rising at a record rate at the moment. So you only have to look at this as well, the, the, the Euro final and semi-final to kind of think, oh shit, you know, um, everyone's going to get sick, you know. But um, so, yeah, it makes sense to kind of to maintain your own revenue or you make so, sure you sign the best deal you possibly can with the best label. Um, fight as hard as you can when, it, when it's the time to sign, sign that deal. Get a good lawyer to represent you. Get that label to pay for your lawyer, which actually they have to do legally but not a lot of people know that because not a lot of people say that. Um, and do it that way. And it's both ways can work. But I think what doesn't really work is to keep putting your chains out on various labels, left, right and centre. And most most labels are run by really, really good people, you know, who have no intention of not paying you everything. But it's very, very difficult to pay everything because paying everything means, it literally means aggregating about 150 different 
very small royalty streams and putting them together accurately and conveying all the information. And hospitals' royalty statements have over over 100,000 lines of information. Um, it's quite astonishing. So you've got to have an automated system to do that. The good thing about having your own little label, if it works, and some people have made good successes out of it, is that everything comes to you anyway, so you don't have to bother about royalties. You don't have to bother about people paying you royalties, and you don't have to bother about paying anyone else royalties, which is nice. It is. Um, what's somewhere that you take influence from outside of drum and bass? That's that's actually surprisingly hard to answer. I mean, musically, that's easy. I mean, I, you know, my musical influences, they are really, really eclectic. Really eclectic. I kind of like ev everything apart from, funnily enough, apart from most dance music. Interesting. Most electronic music. I mean, I love... I love electronic music when it's deep. Put it that way. Um, I don't. I don't really like it when it's shallow. You know, vanilla. Um, when it's capital radio, radio one. It's a nightmare, to be honest. You know, too many artists, too many genres to kind of list really. Um, and it, but in terms of, there isn't anything or anyone that I emulate because I've my kind of modus operandi has always been to do things differently from anyone else and to not do things the same as anyone else. Actually, that applies to my music as well. So um, I've got this, and again, it's, it's another sort of like thing that can be quite crippling at times. Um, I've got a massive cliche radar on my head, <laughs> which you can't see it, but it's there. Trust me, and it everything I listen to or look at or everything, it's on. I can't turn it off. Um, it's some very, very weird, bizarre sort of psychological thing. I don't know what it is, but um, it serves me quite well in this industry because it means that if if anything isn't original, I probably know, and I do try very hard not to get involved with things that aren't original because I don't really see the point. So you mentioned you've got an extremely eclectic taste. Mm. Give us an artist that you like that would surprise your average London electricity fan. Well, I mean, real London electricity fans know. <laughs> they know already. You know, there's no kind of like, it's not like I've kept anything out of interviews or secret or anything like that, you know. Uh, I don't know. I mean, um, if I've been listening to a lot of recently, Ivor Cutler. Ivor Cutler was old in the 1960s and he's a Scottish poet, um, not a singer, a sort of comedian, but not a, a kind of very gentle, funny, extremely funny and quite dark comedian poet who plays, or played, because he's dead now, um, played the, the pedal harmonium, which is a sort of like pedal-driven bellows organ. 
absolutely amazing. Like, definitely my top three favourite artists. Interesting. Thank you. Right, so I've got a few questions here from Instagram, from a few either listeners of the podcast or people from your Instagram. She so kindly shared the post, so thank you very much for that. Oh, you're welcome. So I've kind of split them up. I've got a few here that are music-focused, and then I've got a few that are around sobriety, so I'll, I'll count to those later. But if we just start with the music ones. Yeah. So I have a couple here around the Billion, billion Dollar Gravy album, one of which mm. is from Arboristed, who asked, where did the name Billion Dollar Gravy come from? That name had been going around in my head for a little while because one of my favourite albums is by Alice Cooper, and it's Billion Dollar Babies, which I think was released in 1973. It's actually still one of my favourite albums. Um, and I, I just always loved everything about it. And then it was around 2003. So, yeah, that was the kind of Gulf War, um, the whole kind of like weapons of mass destruction for oil kind of thing. And it just kept coming around to my head. Yeah, billion dollar gravy. Gravy is oil. Um, that's what this war is all about, you know. So it just made sense in a weird sort of way, but it did. Okay. And another question here is from Arva Vale. Will you ever remaster or rework your early tracks from Billion Dollar Gravy if you still have the project files? With your ear 20 years more experience, a rework in the same way Yikes was given the treatment would be very interesting to see. Big mm. ups from the States. Yeah. Um, yeah, I could actually. I mean, I've missed the 20 year anniversary of it. Have I? No, I haven't. No, that's 2023. Yeah, I could. I could actually. I better get a move on. But yeah, I think I think I can probably do it because it was around that time that I started I started archiving things properly. And I'm very glad I started to archive things properly because it's it's proven to be a very good thing, actually. Um not only for remixes, but for things like this, for remaking, you know. There's nothing worse than like thinking, oh yeah, I'm going to go back into that old tune I did, and then, and you try and you you just can't open the project. It won't open, or if it does open, it's absolutely, it's not what you were doing at the time at all, you know, because none of the plugins open or whatever. So, yeah, I reckon I can do that. Mm. Brilliant. So Jay Black asks, what are some of the major qualities that you would have considered when signing new artists to hospital records? And do artists generally have creative freedom once signed? Um, you don't always get it right, particularly when you've got a catalogue as big as hospitals. But my, my philosophy was always a very simple one, and that was, for example, listening to demos, which for many years was me. I'll do it once a week. I'd make sure I didn't did it in the morning because I couldn't do it after the day of working on D&B tunes. So first thing in the morning, clear head, um, fresh ears, going to the demo inbox. And because of the structure of most drum and bass tunes, 
you don't listen from the beginning. You sort of have and the sheer quantity of demos as well. Uh, you sort of have to go from the breakdown just before the drop if there is one, and then get a sense. I mean, you know, within about eight bars if it's shit. Um, if it's if it's good, you have to let it run for a little bit, but that's not enough. So for me, it was always about: is this different? Is it good but different? Is this making me feel something I haven't actually heard before? Or crucially, do I wish I'd made this? And I got that feeling with artists like High Contrast um, and Logistics. Um, definitely like, well, I wish I'd made that. It's amazing. You know. Um, it was a good sign. Yeah. And that's a really good sign. That's a really good sign. So it can't be if someone, you can always, I can always tell if someone's made a tune for a hospital because it, it sounds like something we've already released and that's no good. So you can't have that, I believe. Um, so yeah, it's, do artists have artistic freedom? Yes, they do. And I would only sign someone if I could trust from hearing their work that their artistic freedom is important part of what they do. So you, you don't only sign the human being, you sign their music and you sign their artistic freedom. So you have to give them artistic freedom. But in return for that, um, there's a kind of understanding that at least listen to our feedback because it could be useful for you. And if we've got really strong ideas that we believe in that could help you to make your tunes better than they are while still sounding like you, then give those ideas a go. And you can always say, well, I gave it a go, but I don't like that change you suggested or whatever. Um, so it's it's a collaborative process, you know. And yes, artistic freedom is absolutely essential. Cool. One from Rob McKay. I like this one. What's the biggest lesson you've learned in the last 12 months? Wow. I've learned a lot of lessons in the last 12 months. Um, good question, Rob. I thought so. I think for me personally, it's it's really just don't don't take yourself so fucking seriously. I know that encapsulates a lot of different things, but it is basically that. How are you taking yourself too seriously previously? Well, I was. I mean, I I was probably because I was really miserable. Um, I've been depressed on and off over the years. And I used to accept it as part of my artistic temperament. Um, but yeah, when you're in that kind of cycle, then everything's serious, you know. And the worst thing is that you end up taking your own depression seriously. And that's fateful because when you do that, then yeah, you're on a downward spiral. Um, and I think what I've learned is to not. It's not take it seriously at all. 
you know, and remember to take the piss out of myself on a daily basis. It's important. So something I know that has happened in the 12 months, because you told me, is you stopped drinking. Mm. So how long has that been now? Um, since the beginning of this year. And why now? What was your relationship with alcohol like leading up to then? Well, it was always fine. Well, at least I thought it, oh, it was fine. Um, I mean, after DJing at a few gigs, I would allow myself to to really get on one with people backstage and enjoy that. Um, but I didn't have always had a rule of not having more than one drink in the venue before the show, before I before I performed, and latterly, like before lockdown, um, I was for the most part doing five or six hour sets which is something that I really really loved and as I got older the older the older I get the longer I like to play for you know um, and doing a one hour set now for me just it's not even having a wank it's just scratching your balls <laughs> what a quote <laughs> literally that's how it feels you know, so I was, I was saying I, it got to the point where, like, 2018 and 19, I would only accept a gig if it enabled me to play all night, and I still ran out. I still ran out of time. You know, still didn't fit in all the tunes I wanted to play, so I wasn't. Um, I wouldn't kind of like be inebriated or anything before I played. But last year in lockdown. Um, I think the combination of boredom and misery and stress, I was drinking too much, definitely. And it may not be drinking too much on many people's scale, but for me it was too much. And I just thought, well, this year, turning, I turned 60 in April, and I thought going into the, the new year, I just thought, well, what are your priorities? You know, it's like there's no reason to keep drinking there's nothing to be said for it you know there's no health reasons to drink there's there's no you know it doesn't make you lose weight to drink unless that's all you do is drink and not eat um and it's expensive uh, it annoys my wife um she doesn't really drink it even annoyed my kids so and really there's no reason so I'm going to stop drinking. And it's one of the best decisions that I've ever made. Me too. <laughs> what, what made you stop drinking? What made me stop drinking? Um, so I quit about three years ago. Um, to give you an idea, I'm 28. Um, mm -hmm. And I just got started to get the feeling that it just wasn't, fitting with where I wanted to be in my life. It didn't, didn't suit me. I'd wake up hungover after a, a really fun weekend. It would, it would knock my routine out and I'd be hit with the obvious hangover, come down, whatever that you're stuck with after a heavy weekend. But there would just be this lingering feeling of th this isn't me. 
this isn't who I want to be. Um, I went through maybe three extended periods of not drinking. And when I say extended, it was anywhere between six weeks and three months, I think. Mm. Um, really enjoyed those periods. Didn't str- I didn't struggle for those periods, but then there'd come a, a day, an event, or some, one, one that sticks in my mind is it was Christmas Eve once and I always get pissed on Christmas Eve. So I got pissed and then it flicked a switch yeah. and I went back to drinking as regularly yeah. as I did before. Um, and then the final time I remember I'd, I'd uh, played in Ibiza. It was like the gig of my life. I just then, I took it easy before the set, kind of like you were just saying you do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just went mental after it. And then I just got, home after that and just thought ah this is it now like i'm not gonna not gonna make i was almost like when i'd stop i'd make an excuse to start again Mm. so i just thought no i'm not gonna not gonna do that anymore and it's just stuck at it since and yeah i've never looked back really can be insidious because you when when you are when you are drinking or taking your drug of choice or whatever you know the reasons to take it can be I'm taking it because I'm feeling shit. I'm taking it because I'm feeling stressed. I'm taking it actually because I'm in pain or I'm ill. I'm taking it because I'm bored. I'm taking it because I'm celebrating. And that covers the entire spectrum of kind of everyone's state of mind at any given time, you know. And like, I, I mean, over the, yeah, I mean, like when I, I remember when I left college, College was busy, really busy, you know, five pints down the student union by most nights. And I turned up at college with two carry bags full of weed that I'd grown on the golf course near my mum and dad's house. <laughs> <laughs> and like, so the first year I was just stoned the whole time um, and pissed. And I remember when I left college, I just thought I've got to stop drinking and smoking. And, and I did for about three years. It took me a while to sleep properly again after smoking so much weed just before bed, you know. But I think I moved in with some friends in a house share and we we all started brewing our own beer because we couldn't really afford to buy pints, you know. So we had homebrew on the go and it was like very light drinking really for decades, I'd say, you know. But um, last year was, I mean... I could easily just have a bit of wine with my meal or anything, you know, now. Um, but I don't want to, you know, I actually don't want to. So you've mentioned that you've been hit with a few bouts of depression over the years. Mm. Have you noticed any difference in that since you've stopped drinking? Has that affected your mental health yeah. in any way? I haven't been depressed at all. And that might be because I'm not drinking or it's more likely to be what I'm doing alongside not drinking, I think, Um, which is I'm meditating. Um, And yeah, I'm I'm actually, this sounds kind of funny, but, you know, I mentioned ambition earlier Um, and it's all concurrent really because I feel like my ambition has lived its life, its useful life for me. 
which doesn't mean that I'm not going to be creative. I am, and I'm being creative now. It's just, it's a lot more fun being creative now um, because I'm not beating myself with sticks covered in thorns every night, you know. So I'm, I'm, I'm really enjoying things in life that I would never allow myself to enjoy. Like simple things, you know, day-to-day mundane, ordinary things. Um, because I've, I've lived a whole, you know, 50, say 45 years from the age of 15, I guess just absolutely convinced that I can change things and that I have to pursue something really special, something very distilled, something pure. Um, and I have, you know, I have chased that and I have managed to change certain things in a small way. Um, and I've enabled a lot of creation along the way by other people and myself. Um, it would almost be sad to keep doing that, really. It's like, when I decided to move forward from hospital records, um, everyone assumed that I was going to start a new label. And I was thinking, yeah, or I went into autopilot and thinking, yeah, I, I should do that, you know. And then I thought, what? I just had five years being really miserable about being in a record label that I've been in for 25 years. Why do I want to start another one? That's the last thing I want to do. And it is the last thing I want to do, really. So... It's good. I feel I feel really, really happy. I'm really, really able to appreciate things a lot more, definitely. And to appreciate what I've done, because I've never ever been one for people used to say to me, like, oh, you must be so proud of hospital and what you've achieved. And I'm like, well, no, I don't I never see that. I just always I'm always worried about next year. You know, I'm always worrying about the future. I'm planning for that and you know I'm always living 18 months in the future and there's no time to actually stop and look around and go isn't this great you know never did that ever did that and I can't do that even now really like the easiest part of life for me would be to stay at hospital records just be the kind of mellow old like chairman of the board kind of like you know um pop in the obvious office every now and then nice everybody up but i still i can't i still got this kind of like this burning desire to to help people to you know to help the the underdog and all of this that's always going to be there till i die you know so i have to be involved in new things not not the same old thing. When I was listening to your Thinkcast, mm. I um, I noticed you mentioned gamification of certain elements of running the label that you didn't feel that you were naturally good at, which I found like a really interesting concept. Mm. Have you applied that sort of concept to anywhere else in your life, like your sobriety or any other techniques that you've kind of used to learn to feel comfortable in your sobriety? Yeah, it's funny you say that. Maybe subliminally, I have. I mean, what what you're talking about, about gamification is 
it's basically all the if you start your own kind of business or in this case a record label music company there are large parts of it that are on the face of it very very boring like um doing royalty counting and and writing artist contracts out and all that kind of stuff so i didn't set out to gamify it but i just found myself doing that and it just makes it fun you know you set yourself little challenges and kind of hurdles and um and it's you versus the big bad world when you're an independent business and you're doing almost everything so it's it's fun if if it's for a good cause you know doing those things if, if you're working for a faceless corporation with two thousand other people and you have to draft contracts well that's not fun you know but if it's if you're writing a contract to sign high contrast, then that's fun because his music's amazing and you know what you can do with it. So, yeah, gamify those things. And for me, I guess yeah, in in sobriety, I, sp- I suppose it has been really. Um, and I, it's not like I've had to gamify not having a drink, um, but it's like I always used to think, oh, just drinking water is going to be really boring. You know, but it isn't. You know, it really isn't. Especially if you adhere to the sort of the mantra that um, you're only hydrated if your urine is clear. You know, and when I was drinking for years and years and years, <laughs> looking back on it, I was always dehydrated. I just didn't know it. You know, so. Um, yeah, I think, you know, in life, it's if you want to change the way you live and do live life differently, then I think you have to make it as fun as possible. You know, um, I've put on weight since I stopped drinking because I've allowed myself uh, too many treats. <laughs> um, but, you know, I'll, I'll tackle that gradually. Yeah, I've actually heard that from quite a few people that mm. they do exactly that. Um, and then once they kind of get used to it, it falls back off again. Yeah. They get, they get rid of the sort of short-term habits that they might have picked up. So I feel like there's very few industries in the world where it's as acceptable to be smashed before, during, and after your shift. And I'm obviously talking about yeah. DJs and performers. Um which I think is is a massive issue for a lot of people, um, whether they are performers or whether they're just ravers, they're just in a scene where it's almost, where it just goes hand in hand for so many people, doesn't it? Um, how have you seen, obviously without mentioning any names, how have you seen that impact people over the years? Have you seen it impact careers negatively that could have been something else? Definitely. And it's it is quite scary. I mean, like this this year, I was you know, we're still in we're still in lockdown now. We're still in lockdown very much in January and February. Um, and I was kind of thinking, I know I want to move forward from hospital. Um, what do I want to do? Do I want to restart my touring career? I didn't because I wanted to actually spend. A healthy amount of time with my family 
But in that process of actually looking at it, I was doing pros and cons on paper, you know, like you do sometimes. So you make a decision, what I do anyway. And and I was doing like the pros and cons of of DJing to make a living. And it it blew my head off because I had no idea that like for example, say I got a booking to play in Berlin on a Saturday night at Club Gretchen or Roxy in Prague or something. Um I'd have I think it was seven unique opportunities, including the journey and the gig, to to consume as much free alcohol as I wanted. And that was in the space of 24 hours. You know, so that'd be at the airport lounge because I was fortunate enough, I was traveling so much that I had a, a BA gold card. So to get into the British Airways lounge and it was really, really, really good wine as much as you want. You know, you get on the plane and it's there's booze brought to you and get into the hotel, um, have a meal with the promoter, more drink, um, get to the, to the gig and there's the whole fridge full of vodka backstage or behind the decks. Um, might be an after party, which as I've got older, I've gone to less and less. Uh, but there are some promoters who really almost wear it as a badge of pride if they can get you completely fucked. Um, and it's kind of sweet because they're, they're fans of the music and they're fans of the DJs they book. And I think they want to tell other promoters in different countries that they got you the most shit faced of all. <laughs> and very occasionally, like nine times out of 10, I would say, no, 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 look, I'm just going to go back to the hotel off the gig, you know. But occasionally I would just go, yeah, do you know what? Let's get on one. And, yeah, I'd wake up the next morning and try and remember what had happened, you know. Um, and then the same in reverse, like you get back to the airport in, Germany or wherever and there's a business lounge and you get on the plane and there's free drinks on the plane and it's just like endless and I had no idea how much I was drinking you know and I wasn't consciously drunk or even unconsciously drunk because no one called me out for being drunk you know even my wife when I got home didn't say you've been on it haven't you you know um but I must have been because I was consuming so much I mean, I know of other professions like the legal profession and the financial industry where cocaine is an absolutely massive thing. Um, and for many people, it starts after work when they go into a bar in the city and they have some lines. And it can either stay like that or it can escalate so that they think no one knows that they're actually... No one... No one they think no one realises that what they're doing is having 14 toilet breaks in the day and doing a line every time they go to the toilet, you know. Um, but in terms of actually being allowed to be visibly off your face, uh, it's funny, it's it's actually not acceptable for DJs to be like that. Because when they are, they can't do their job. 
and it becomes very apparent. You know, it's different when you've played to then party with the promoter and, you know, because you've done your bit then. But I've, I've, obviously I've seen DJs and MCs who literally can hardly stand before they're set and quite often I've had to just very subtly kind of just take over from them quite quickly, you know. Um, and I learned quite early on, like back in the vinyl days, I learned to always travel with, if I was booked to do a two-hour set, I would always make sure I had five hours worth of records just in case the promoter needed me to play for longer, you know. And and it happened sometimes, and I was really glad that I did have that flexibility because I know what it's like being a promoter when someone you've, you've paid a lot of money for and people have come to see either doesn't turn up or they, they turn up fucked. And that's not funny. Yeah, I think, you know, although, like you said, this is the only industry you can think of where it's okay to be like that. It actually isn't okay to be like that if it affects your game, you know. So you mentioned there about your touring and I imagine you've played countless countries all over the world. So have you noticed how the role and culture around alcohol differs from certain countries? Yeah. And it's exactly what you would expect. If you, if you go to, if you go to a show in any part of central Europe, heading East towards Russia, um, then it's vodka vodka everywhere everyone's drinking vodka all the time you know um and people try and get shots down you before you play you know <laughs> it's a nightmare actually can't do that no way might have a polite glass of wine with dinner or might have done uh, but that that vodka culture has kind of spread west more and more over, over recent years I think I think um, back to the touring days, like for a while I was on the same agency as John B and I saw his rider once. And I was really impressed because he, on his rider, he had, um, I want a bottle of the best local wine, like wherever he was, you know, and I started doing that. And it was actually really good because I started to discover there are some really amazing wines that we don't get to hear about over here in places like Romania um, and Slovenia. Great wine that they keep for themselves, you know, really nice stuff. So, and that that local aspect of touring I loved and I always, because the pros were generally, if they didn't know me, if they're courteous, they'd always say, what would you like to eat? And I would always say, I want to eat in a local restaurant that, that serves local food because I was always curious to find out what I didn't know. So what do people eat in um, Lithuania? You know, what do people eat in Bucharest? What, what do they eat in South Korea? You know, so and that's always been something I love is, is finding out more about the culture from from its food 
I always think that must be one of the joys of having an extensive international touring schedule. It's just being able to experience different mm. cultures. Amazing. It was amazing. And honestly, since lockdown, we we can't experience anything international at the moment. And boy, do I appreciate those years, those decades of touring, how lucky I was to be able to do that and how lucky we all were that the world was actually open. You know, it was open for business. I mean, it's I can't believe how open it was now. It's amazing. And I do wonder if it'll ever be that open again, given that everyone's seen how quickly a pandemic can spread. Mm. Um, mind you, that said, our government's opening everything up, even though infections are going through the roof. And I think that might come back to, to bite them, actually. Um, but, yeah, really lucky, definitely. What would you say to someone in the genre or even just in the wider dance music scene that's considering sobriety, but is maybe somewhat concerned about being in the industry that is an industry that you're kind of constantly going to find yourself surrounded by alcohol? It's a good point. And I think, but it does come down to a very, very fundamental question that you need to ask yourself. And so to that person, I would say, do you want to feel more like you or do you want to feel less like you? Because if you want to feel more like you, then you don't need to drink or, or take any drugs. If you want to feel less like you, then maybe that's a short-term way of, of feeling less like you. But if that's a problem, get the problem sorted out. Because people who drink too much or take take too many drugs, it's not the drink or the drugs that's the problem. It's That's just a symptom of something that's kind of more profound underlying. Um, and people who, people who drink to escape, well, you need to work on what you're escaping from, you know, because then you'll probably need to drink less. But in, in an industry that is so characterised and defined by the consumption of, of drink and drugs, I mean, drink is a drug, so let's just say drugs, it's, it's difficult if you feel like you need to fit in. I was always struck with high contrast. We signed him when he was 19 or 20 years old, and he's always been sober. And uh, I say, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and for him, it was like, it was totally intertwined with his whole, like his artist name, High Contrast. That's a play on many different things, but apart from his love of film and video and everything, and the fact that drum and bass is a musical contrast, um, and within his drum and bass, there are big contrasts. But it's also um, literally the contrast to being high is to be sober. Um, and uh, and he was really, really young. And he was, there was no FOMO at all in him. He was like, well, I, I've seen my friends get pissed over and over and I don't like it. I don't like seeing them behave that way and I don't want to behave that way. So I guess a bit like you, he, 
he didn't want to be taken out of himself because he wanted to be in himself so that he could get better at making music. Very interesting indeed. Mm. So I have a couple of questions from Instagram again. So that damn has mentioned that he's over two years sober and has had a heavy, heavy period of losing drive and motivation around music, which he feels is stronger now than ever. He's had to leave his favorite events on a night just to avoid a bar. So his question is how to handle the loss of drive and motivation around music in the early stages of sobriety. I'm wondering where he's from, if he's able to go out to events. Well, he does say he's two, uh, two years sober. So I don't right pre COVID. I, I, I know, but I would actually say you can't really judge it because we've had lockdown and that's not everyone's needs and desires. And, you know, it's screwed with everything really. So it's not a level playing field to compare yourself to. I would, I would kind of say, look, don't worry about it. Just wait until we can actually go partying again. And probably you'll feel amazing sober just going to a dance, you know. Yeah, I'd agree. And the kind of impression that I got from the question was, there's clearly a person that's very passionate about dance music, but he's maybe having some issues around the the being present at events sober and a lot of that often is who you're there with now i'm not necessarily suggesting change who you go with i'm just suggesting making sure that who you go with understand why you are going to these events sober and that you are going to have certain difficulties along the way and making sure that they kind of understand that prior to events can often be quite helpful to make sure you're just in the right circle and in the right kind of frame of mind and everyone around you is in the right frame of mind as well and they they see your sobriety for what it is rather than something that maybe you're just trying out for the night and then they'll kind of try and push you through it and tempt you it's true i mean there's a lot of peer pressure there is and i think i think that can manifest itself almost like uh your friends could actually take it as an affront almost like a bit of an insult to their lifestyle that you're not drinking and you're not going there because we all know when we're, when we're going on one and when we're getting off it, um, we know, we know that we shouldn't really be doing that. And we're, we're kind of encouraged by the fact that everyone else we're with is doing that. And it's a sort of like herd mentality um, and you make each other feel better about doing it, you know. Uh, whereas if one of your close group of friends is totally sober, it can kind of piss on your chips a bit, really. You know? Yeah, well put, I'd agree. Uh, so, yeah, just one final question here from Fatboy Mon Clover, who asks, how do you think the rave scene is changing with more people being sober? It's very hard to say because there hasn't been a scene for pretty much a year and a half. So I don't know. And before that, I guess, I don't know if it's because 
the sort of people who've come to my my own events, and by that I mean if I'm booked to play overseas and I'll do an all-night set, then there'll be a thousand people who might be older than, say, a crowd who comes to hospitality, um, who tend to be in their very early 20s. So, and the older crowd will, by definition, be more sober because a lot of them have got to get up in the morning for a job or maybe they've got kids at home or whatever. So, but you're the kind of standard sort of like school leavers or young student crowd came, were coming to the big events, not just hospitality, but, you know, all the big, the big raves and festivals, same as ever, really. And what actually changes is not how many people are off their heads, but what they're off their heads on. And that over the years has changed a lot from every three or four or five years with the passion of drugs and what's available and what isn't, you know. It's a thing. Young people do. They, I did, you know. I wouldn't have been able to do what you did, like stay sober in in my early 20s. You know, I did get sober for, for a while, but I didn't even want to, keep, to stay sober after a couple of years, you know. And I think that's that does make it harder for a lot of people. It's just that fear of missing out, I think. But you can flip it on its head and go, well, if you've really got a fear of missing out, then, like high contrast, then you're afraid of missing out by drinking or by taking drugs. So there's two sides to every coin. Right. So, yeah, thank you very much for those responses for our Instagram questions. So I've just got a couple more questions for you, really, before I let you go. Okay. Yep. One of them in regards to your future projects. So you mentioned, obviously, your Thingcast, your new podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, what else can you tell us about that you've got coming up? Uh, what can we look forward to? Um, for the foreseeable future, I'm still going to be releasing my music on hospital records. Um, I'm just not going to be actually sitting behind a desk there. Uh, so I've put together a, a remix album of my last London Electricity album, which was called Building Better Worlds. So this is Rebuilding Better Worlds. Um, that's coming out in October. Um, got all the remixes in for that around April, um, April and May. Actually, one of your former guests, Mosey, he's done one for that. Um, and uh, so, yeah, that that's coming out. And beyond that, I mean... Once I've reconstructed my studio, then I will start actually making new music, writing new music. And I quite like the idea of releasing music on little labels just to kind of, I suppose, to really live the kind of freedom vibe that I feel like I've got now, you know. So I do like the idea of doing that. We'll see. Um, if anyone will have me, you know. Um, but yeah, like I said earlier, I'm enjoying not not knowing what I'm going to do. It's great. Yeah, it sounds that way. So, where is the best place for us to follow you and keep up to date on your projects as and when you announce them? Probably 
subscribe to the podcast, to the the thing cast. Um, it's on all proper channels, um, including my Mixcloud and YouTube and stuff. Um, Instagram is where I talk the most, I think. Um, so just follow London Elec on Instagram and you will get wind of everything that I'm up to, I think. Well, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your schedule to, to talk to me. It's been, it's been fascinating to talk to you and um, I have no doubt the listeners will find it as interesting as I have. Um, so yeah, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. I've, re- I've really enjoyed it and it's a very, it's nice to have a different slant on a, on an interview. You know, it's nice for there actually to be a kind of a subject, a concept. So, um, thank you. And, um, I hope your, your series of interviews continues to grow. I think it will. Yeah. I, I, I kind of thought that from, from the start that I thought it's a, it's a mm. different angle. And when I am approaching guests, it's quite likely combination of topics that they haven't spoken about together before. Um, yeah. So I might get a few, a few more yeses than I, if I was either just doing a sober podcast or just doing a music podcast. Yeah. I really enjoyed that. Thanks ever so much. Thank you.